0: Hello, Pharmacy Podcast Nation. My name is Dr. Chloe Gibbons, and I am thrilled to announce that I have officially joined forces with the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The last several months of 2020 were very busy for us. We were working behind the scenes to create a brand new platform for pharmacists, pharmacy students, and pharmacy industry professionals. Our first available series is entitled The NAPLEX Podcast, the first show dedicated to helping pharmacy students prepare to take the North American Pharmacist Licensure Examination. Each episode of the podcast will provide listeners with a thorough review of pharmacology and pharmacotherapy topics that were taught during the didactic portion of pharmacy school. I will be your host, guiding you through each review, and there are 70-plus episodes episodes for you to access while on the go. Thank you all so much for listening. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
1: Pharmacists and physicians have critical roles in addressing the current opioid epidemic and ensuring appropriate care for patients with pain as well as with addiction. And both physicians and pharmacists have responsibilities to ensure that opioids are prescribed and dispensed for legitimate medical purposes and to meet legal requirements. This isn't easy. It sounds easier than it is. The stress that's placed on physicians and pharmacists to navigate pain management and or those patients and, and consumers out there that are suffering with addiction, that is a balance beam. I'm excited to bring back um, to, the, to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation this topic, which was brought to me by an organization called PROP, Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing, where we had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Jane Ballantyne and Dr. Andrew Kolodnyne. Well, today, Andrew Claudney returns with two pharmacists. One of them, Dr. Mark Oroffoli, who is a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and the host of the Pain Pod, and David Morgan, a pharmacist with veteran years of experience in uh, pain management. And I'm excited to welcome all three of you, um, Mark, David, Andrew, welcome back to the Pharmacy Podcast.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Todd.
1: So a patient has an issue, they have pain, they need uh, some sort of uh, of relief, they just went through a knee surgery of some sort, and they begin uh, treatment uh, to, uh, to squash that pain as much as possible. And uh, someone in uh, Dr. Andrew's uh, lane knows exactly what to do with all the experience that you have in order to start some type of therapy per se. And then the patient moves away, states away, counties away, whatever. And now all of a sudden, two years, three years later, they're addicted to opioids. And these kinds of stories are are very prevalent. We know that there's still a pandemic uh, at large. And the heroes for me are, are the pharmacists out there working with physicians to help patients, to help people that are in fact in pain, but to navigate that balance beam that I mentioned in the opening. So I'm gonna start off to bring us back to why we started this series with Dr. Andrew Kolodny, just to pick up kind of where we left off, which is we we set the stage. We set the stage for the series of pharmacists and physicians collaborating together. And you and, and Dr. Ballantyne had some really interesting things to share during episode one, which will be in the show notes, which was released on April twenty eighth, two thousand twenty one, but Dr. Kolodny, kind of take us into the collaborative role now, where we have uh, Mark and and David on with us, and and what you do as a as a physician who's commanding uh, treatment for patients.
3: So you know, I, I think the way you opened up the show just now and the case vignette that you, of a patient uh, with post-operative knee pain um, who winds up years later stuck on opioids or addicted uh, to opioids is a really good place to start because it uh, it's a nice way to begin thinking about the way in which Physicians and pharmacists are on the front line of the opioid crisis and the ways in which uh, both have levers uh, or actions they could take uh, to, to help address the the crisis. It, it's interesting because in other countries, post-operative pain is rarely treated with opioids outside of the hospital. When, when patients are discharged, after a surgical procedure in other countries. They are rarely sent home with, with opioids. There was a paper published just about a year ago comparing post-operative opioid prescribing in the United States to several other countries around the world. And what they found was that in the US, the mean or average number of pills was something like Twenty or thirty, um, and in other countries, the um, mean number of pills was a little more than zero. Uh, and in fact, the median, the most average, the most common uh, prescription post-op was zero pills, and um, and and so the average came to something like one or two pills uh, for the few patients who were sent home with opioids. And and it's really important because much of the discussion about long-term opioid use has been focused on prescribing for chronic pain. Um, But what we know is that for many patients who are prescribed opioids for chronic pain, the initial prescriptions began after an injury or after surgery and the patients just never came off. And so what is the role for the pharmacist versus the physician in preventing inappropriate prescribing of opioids that can lead to addiction and, and long-term use? What is the appropriate role for pharmacists versus uh, physicians? I know that there are some in the medical community who I, I think don't recognize that pharmacists are critical Members of of the team that's caring for patients that they are health professionals who can serve an important role and would rather just see a pharmacist follow a, pres- a physician's order or prescription without any questions asked and and I know a few years ago uh, when uh, a, a major pharmacy chain announced that it was not going to simply fill uh, prescriptions and that there would be more of a query uh depending on that type of opioid prescription written i know that the ama weighed in publicly against that and so yeah, you know, i'm very eager to hear from our pharmacist guests on this show um about how they see the role their role in in preventing long-term uh use or inappropriate prescribing of opioids and and of course it's Quite a challenging role when when the pharmacist is not the physician, um, but has to deal with the patient who walks into the pharmacy with that inappropriate prescription.
1: Let's jump right in, David, and and hear from you with your experiences.
4: So I've you know I've been a pharmacist over forty five years, um, and so I've seen the profession change, and it's changed in many ways. So let's go back to the mid nineties where most of the opioids were reserved for end of life. Hospice type of pain, and that you're right. there were they weren't prescribed post surgically large quantities. I mean, there was certainly Percocet. Well, Percodan was around, and then Percocet came along, and they added the acetaminophen instead of the aspirin. But uh, most of the larger quantities were for end of life or cancer pain. But then this the, the kind of a lot of forces coming to play around the late '90s meaning that there was a lot of forces saying that pain was undertreated, and that we had to, you know, aggressively treat pain and that the opioids weren't as dangerous and that they should be used, you know, around the clock, you know, otherwise in that uh, there's no upper limit and stuff like that. And those types of arguments might have made sense in cancer pain or end-of-life pain, but don't make a lot of sense, especially in younger people and especially in post-op. The other forces that came into play are that And hopefully someday we'll get back to it. Is that healthcare was a local thing. So it was local pharmacists dealing with local physicians who knew their local patients, that triad. And then we moved away and we got into mail order with, you know, the prescription, the drugs are being sent from all around the country into the home and people weren't having that relationship with their local pharmacists. So uh, that's a force that, um, you know, also led towards this whole you know, problem of opioid addiction and stuff like that, where, uh, you know, if the pharmacist is the most accessible healthcare professional, I mean, you know, people can just go into a pharmacy and talk to a pharmacist, and they don't have to make an appointment, and that they often visit pharmacies, you know, either monthly or regularly, where they would only see the prescriber only occasionally, either, you know, every few months and stuff like that. And so there is a role for pharmacists, there is a role of collaboration, in that, in that since the pharmacist can see how the person is doing if they come to the pharmacy, whether they're, you know, how their life's going, how's their family going, because addiction is a is a family disease and should be treated as a family disease. And that, to, if the triad of the pharmacist, the patient, the physician are working to the same goal, I think things would work better. And that these are difficult conversations, especially if somebody somebody's coming in early for the refills or they're using more pills than they should be using. That's a difficult conversation. And the way Physically, the pharmacies are set up. They're not set up for confidential, diff- difficult conversation. At least I've yet to see a pharmacy set up right. So anyways, I hope our profession can get back to that collaboration. Uh, and I think it might exist in certain pockets, but it's not universally available. Um, I'll pass it off to Mark and see what is, let him weigh in on that. <laughs>
2: Well, thank you very much, David, and and of course Andrew as well too. This uh, this topic, it it I feel like in healthcare we tend to make things complicated when sometimes they're straightforward. Now, I'm not trying to simplify the opioid pandemic crisis or whatever words we want to use here, but you know, it all it all comes down to uh, heck of federal law that we have. I, I know in previous times we've we've chatted, uh, gentlemen, uh, even regarding the simplicity of our Federal Controlled Substance Act. I mean, decades ago, right? Uh, you know, when you're talking about pharmacists, I, I cover this with uh, those in our profession all the time of that corresponding legal responsibility. I mean, we've heard that record on repeat, right? But what the heck does it actually mean? And what's it entail? Um, you know, the idea that we have to ensure that a prescriber is in their scope of practice. You know, if you have an optometrist prescribing um, dilated uh, with high risk dosage, are we in the right scope here well you're going to need a little more story for that one right if that would suffice at all ever uh, and then the diagnosis you know the diagnosis as easy as it is to say good golly we're on icd 10 11 when you know the list will go on anybody ever heard of 89.4 those are our peeps in, in pain management you'll remember that when it's like saying somebody has pain and that's it um those are the two profound things there but you know, it gets complicated. It's, uh, I always like to quote Mark Twain, um, a much more intelligent Mark, that is. Uh, you know, uh, sorry, I would have made this letter shorter, but I didn't have the time. Well, thankfully, the feds made a very succinct law, diagnosis and scope of practice. And then we got to practice at the top of our license. We got to do what we said of doing no harm, uh, well beyond that. And as pharmacists providing care. Um, you know, not that long ago, I believe it was our APHA president, our umbrella organization. It was LB. LB said, my theme for, for the presidency of APHA will be pharmacists provide care. So how do we do that? Um, it, you know, what I'm hearing uh, from based off of uh, what David was saying and, and Andrew along the way, and quite frankly, all of you in the audience, we have these conversations going in circles all the time. But what I'm hearing is what my dad asked me a couple of years ago. He had a surgery. And when he got home, he had a bottle of prescription medicine and he called me, he's old school. He doesn't use, you know, Facebook and all them things. He called me and said, Hey kiddo, what do I do with these things? And you got to think about why he called me other than being his kid, by the way. But um, it was because when you read the bottle, it said, take one to two, every four to six hours as needed. I mean, good golly, we we have that on prescription labels all the time, right? With very good intent, we want to have flexibility to help our patients the way that we can. But what are they reading? One to two every four to six for a high risk controlled substance. I asked him to not tell me the name of the medicine. And then we discussed how to actually utilize the thing um, and going forward with that. But you know, taking that next step. We're not talking about typing a prednisone taper on a label. Good golly, uh, that and saran wrap are, are, you know, for the afterlife on the negative side. But anyways, the the being there and talking with our patients, but, you, you know, I, I'd even, uh, I'd punt it back to, to you, gentlemen, David and Andrew on the, um, you know, when it comes to time, uh, it's perhaps the most valuable resource on the earth, but, you know, where where do we where do we fit this patient care into the average day of a pharmacist? I I, I certainly welcome everyone's thoughts there. What, what are you guys thinking?
3: Well, I I think I'm probably the wrong person to answer the question. <laughs> uh what I understand and, and believe to be true is that pharmacists are healthcare professionals and um are well trained and that they have a That their professional responsibility includes ensuring that a prescription, uh, particularly for a controlled substance, is appropriate. That they're not just there to fill that prescription, um, but of course there are constraints on pharmacists, uh, particularly time constraints, just as there are constraints on, on the average Physician. And we we already know that one of the reasons that primary care uh, physicians may over-prescribe opioids is because it's the easiest, quickest thing to do. Uh, it takes just a few minutes to, um, or takes even less to, to write the prescription. Whereas to explain to a patient, particularly a patient who may want that prescription. Why it isn't appropriate, or to find an alternative, or to recommend an alternative, um, can take a lot more time. You know, you see the same problem when it comes to uh, prescribing or overprescribing of antibiotics. It's a lot easier to prescribe an antibiotic to a patient with a cold virus than it is to explain that antibiotics are, don't really work on viruses, and uh, you know, and to not prescribe that anti. Antibiotic, so you know, I, I think that sometimes or often, um, better, more appropriate care can be a bit more time-consuming, and I think health professionals have a responsibility uh, to try and, and find that right balance, um, despite the constraints. But really, I think it's—I'd uh, rather hear from you and and David about how how pharmacists need to to juggle that.
4: So I think one of the problems is that I think medicine and pharmacy both have is the time constraints. And so in pharmacists, since they're not paid for their time, they're only paid for their product. So it's, it's right. It's easier to just to fill the prescription and, and send the patient on the way and go into the next prescription so that if somebody's either struggling or if you have a question or, you know, uh, you know, that does take more time. And that, um, you know, the other thing that I see that's one difference between pharmacy and medicine is that the pharmacist is put front and center between the insurance company and the the PBMs and the patient, meaning that if the, there's a big copay or if the drug's not covered or requires a prior approval, they're the ones, the bearer of the bad news. And then the patients see the pharmacist as the bearer of bad news. So that it's a difficult conversation where most of the time, the physicians or the prescribers, they're not, you know, they're not involved in the billing. They're not involved in the, the uh, you know, the, the denial of a claim and stuff like that where the pharmacists are front and center. So, uh, you know, but I think that the pharmacists, especially for a new person, a, you know, opiate naive person, they owe a duty to talk about safe use meaning, and in safe storage, meaning that keep it away from kids, keep it locked up. And then when you don't need it anymore, get it out of the house. So, you know, we hear a lot about the opiate epidemic and that I think big strides have made that people aren't abusing prescription drugs quite as much anymore because there's less quantities and there's less, you know, there is safer storage. And most people that are dying are dying of illicit fentanyl. But it all gets back to that. Yes, that patients that, you know, that started post-surgically and they weren't counseled correctly from both the prescriber and the dispensers, that can turn into that person that dies, you know, two, three, four years, or even quicker from illicit fentanyl. So I think, you know, there is still that nexus of legal drugs, meaning pharmaceuticals and illicit drugs, and it starts with healthcare.
2: I I love some of the things you brought up there, David, and and Andrew, I, you know, we're in different professions and all that, but we're on the same boat here, right? We're, uh, it, 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 I'm a huge proponent of interprofessional care and I mean, the world is lost without it. So uh, great to hear your thoughts there. I love the simplistic genius of the antibiotic comparison. Um, jumping back to uh, one or two of the things that David said, there is, is you know, especially when talking about the time that we as pharmacists have. It's limited. Well, it turns out every profession on this planet has limited time. I mean, a plumber comes into your house. There's only so much time to fix the pipes, right? Uh, same thing in in medicine, in uh, pharmacy, all aspects of healthcare, and well beyond. But you know, that responsibility, I I think, yes, there's the corresponding legal responsibility, but again, we signed up every, every pharmacist that you speak to, why'd you get into the professions to help people? And then we have these carpe diem moments of uh, all of a sudden, gosh forbid, we ever enter a world, hopefully we're not there where, um, you know, an insurance company, a PBM screen pop comes up and we need to be as licensed Healthcare professionals with a pulse, if we ever need to be told that there's an opioid benzo interaction and it's relevant, oh my goodness, um, what will we be needed for? Is is a really gut wrenching question, really. You know, we have limited time, but we're there to help people. We have to do these things. Uh, It's not a spider sense going off kind of thing. It's literally that's what we're there for. so, yeah, I, I certainly echo some of the things there that, that David and Andrew were saying, too, of the, you know, i pointing out that, yes, time, resources, time is always limited, but there's things that we just have to do.
1: So where does the argument, if any argument, come in between a pharmacist who sees the repeat uh, problems happening maybe in their community? Maybe this is a community pharmacist. I, it brings to mind... Dan Schneider, um, who who Mark actually just got done interviewing for his podcast and and in, in the Netflix special, the pharmacist, I, and and we understand there was a lot more uh, going on there than just the prescribing doctor, which was uh, w- was way off in 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 wacko land about how she you know prescribed patients, and that's an extreme. But bringing it back to the middle of of responsible opioid prescribing, where is the argument and or the alliance between pharmacist and physician to assure in the United States, uh, because we know that throughout other countries, they're not prescribing opioids, where we know that today's modern American, you know, they want instant relief. They want instant gratification. That's actually, maybe it's part of our culture. Maybe it comes down to the way that we're raised and, and working for something and putting in a ton of time and hours to get it done. But in pain relief overall, the, the three of you are challenged in ways that other physicians and pharmacists are not. But then the pharmacist seems like they're the catch-all in some ways because they, they see their community and their community members sometimes suffering from the occurrence of and and as a consumer myself and a non-pharmacist, a non-physician, I'm the consumer. I stand and look at the three of you as the as kind of the the solutions of the puzzle. But you're certainly not the only members of this. We're talking about law enforcement and government regulation and committee and hospital systems and PBMs and. I mean there's a mixture of what the three of you are challenged as providers out there every day. But what can be what could be done today when we know there are thousands of pharmacists listening to this episode where there where there's someone one extreme that are that are you know they're frustrated, they're angry um, then there's others that are saying we we agree with what Mark and and, and Andrew and David are saying. What kind of counseling can you give to the pharmacist of what they could do today to help out? Is it, is it documentation? Is it better communication? Is it something in our pharmacy management systems that we could look to technology to help us uh, to, to curb the issues? But what are some of your ideas?
3: So uh, much of the, conversation about the opioid crisis nationally is focused on the role of prescribers. And a lot of my own work has been focused on the role of prescribers. And I think we're missing out uh, by focusing so much on the prescribers uh, and not thinking more about the role of pharmacists when it comes to interventions to address the opioid crisis. So I really like that, that question about you know what could be done now um, something that I would maybe put on the top of a of a wish list would be for pharmacists to educate patients about the addictive properties of of opioids and you know I think that if your average patient or parent if they're filling a, a prescription for their child if they understood that a prescription opioid, that the hydrocodone prescription or the oxycodone prescription that they're bringing to the pharmacy. That if they understood that that drug was essentially um, the same as heroin in in its effects, something many people don't recognize is that the effects of oxycodone and heroin are are essentially the same. That they're they're almost indistinguishable that an experienced heroin user would have a hard time telling the difference between oxycodone and heroin. And, and this, is, uh, this was actually studied in a, in a lab setting with experienced heroin users. If pharmacists could better educate patients about the fact that these drugs are essentially heroin pills, you might have more patients saying, you know what, maybe I'll give an over-the-counter analgesic a try. Uh, Maybe I don't want that opioid prescription filled, or if they do fill that prescription, that they would know to take it sparingly and know to keep it away from anybody else in in the family. Um, I think that your average patient and your average parent really doesn't understand how addictive these drugs are until it's too late often. And, and how can they if many prescribers don't really understand how addictive these drugs are? And I really do think that if people better understood the, the risks, we'd see much more cautious use of, of these highly addictive drugs, which are sometimes necessary.
2: Andrew, you, you bring up some really wonderful points there that, that I'd like to even translate into patient care there. Um, you know, never skip the simple stuff. You know, I people always say, keep it simple, silly, right? But um, never skip the simple stuff. Never assume that somebody's living under a rock and doesn't understand the gravity of the opioid crisis. Because if somebody is living under a rock and that's assumed, they may end up living under a stone, a tombstone. If the simple things are not covered by a prescriber, by a dispenser, all of us within healthcare, you know what are the simple things? Uh, you already covered it, Andrew, on the the gravity of the this this medication that we're we're providing our patients. We need to go over those basics, uh, interactions, of course, not just interactions with the prescription things, but anything else that's being utilized in the world, even if it's illicit substances. Gosh forbid. Um, beyond interactions, the side effects to expect. I mean, that could that in the end, the answers to this. It's like uh, uh, who was it? Johann Hari uh, said in a in I believe a TED talk. Uh, talking about the opposite of addiction being relationships. Darn right. It's about conversations as pharmacists, having conversations to build those relationships, going over the interactions, the side effects, and by golly, even storage and disposal. I always say, if you got to pick one, go with storage. uh, Because all of us, well beyond healthcare, all of us, the entire society, we're all indirectly involved in the uh, sensationalization of this opioid crisis that's out there. Because... Even when products eventually uh, the the some that are diverted, they still came from a legal system that we're all there to help patients with too. Something like going over storage and perhaps even disposal uh, could really make an impact on that. Um, you know, it's all those simple things. I, I'm David. I'm, I'm sure you'd love to add a few there too as a pharmacist as well. But yeah, you know, how do we help our patients? What's going on in your mind?
4: I think getting back to that. You know, and I think you're right, Mark, that we got into this profession to help people is that it all comes down to the patient and that um you know what's best for the patient. I think we've made progress on some mm-hmm. things. I think the prescription monitoring programs I think every state has, and I think actually the only hold up Missouri I heard was actually on board. That is taking care of one of the things, the doctor shopping. So people can't go to, you know, twenty doctors in a month and things like that. because uh, a lot of that is clearly over the top in that you know, it, it led to diversion, meaning that people are in the business of selling opioids. I think, hopefully, the prescription monitoring program has stopped that part of it. But, it. but that also, that there's still some outliers and that, um, you know, but that, you know, I think comes back to that we have to instill in patients that respect their medications, especially if they're, you know, Schedule two drugs, you know, opiates in, in our Schedule benzoid benzodiazepines. Respect them, then that they're not, You know, just candy to be shared with their friends and family. That they're very important, uh, and that they're controlled substances, and they're controlled for reasons. The the reasons are that they they can be dangerous in the wrong hands. So, you know, respect the medicine, and that you know, have that conversation. And that um, you know, you know, I was had surgery a few years ago, and one of the the nurses was telling me on discharge that you know, uh, in she said the prescription for oxycodone. Then this is the good stuff, and and I told her I says it's not good stuff or bad stuff. It's 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 the painkillers. Now we need them post surgically, short term, but don't tell patients that these are good drugs. Rather they're, they're just they're medications. They're not the good stuff. Um, so anyway, she kind of was taken back my comment there, and I says but because I see that the good stuff can have bad consequences. So. Let's, let's frame it that they're they're useful medications if used safely uh, and that you know they're not good stuff and then the over-the-counter ones are bad stuff because they don't work as well I mean that's the conversation that they shouldn't be given they should the uh, pharmacists and prescribers should talk about you know appropriate use
3: I think that David is making a really good uh point. Uh, many people are under the impression that opioid pain medicines are the best and strongest pain medicines, and that over-the-counter analgesics uh, like ibuprofen um, are for less severe pain, and that, so that if my pain is especially severe and if the doctor trusts me, I'll get the good stuff, the opioids. Otherwise, I'm going to have to settle with the less effective over-the-counter pain medicine, and that's just not true. Uh, there are studies that have shown that even for severe acute pain, as severe, for example, as renal colic, kidney stone pain, that NSAIDs can be as effective and sometimes more effective than opioids and with less side effects. So the idea that, that opioids are better or more effective painkillers, even for acute pain, isn't necessarily the, the case. And so, yeah, I I think that's something that really has to has to be considered. I I mentioned earlier, um, you know, that I something I'd put at the top of the list uh, for something that pharmacists could be doing now would be educating uh, patients about the addictive properties of of opioids. One of the challenges there is that I think many pharmacists are underestimating how addictive these drugs are because great efforts were made to misinform pharmacists about the risk of of addiction. So part of the campaign to increase opioid prescribing, an industry-funded campaign that really led to an epidemic of opioid addiction, led to this sharp increase in in opioid prescriptions and, and many people ultimately becoming addicted, that campaign involved millions of dollars that were invested in misinforming healthcare professionals about opioids. And of course, much of that or most of it would have been focused on prescribers, but there was also a fair amount of deceptive education targeting pharmacists. Uh, And so pharmacists were also exposed to a campaign that that wrongly suggested that patients were suffering because of underutilization of opioids and that patients need better access to to opioids. And when you've had millions invested in deceiving prescribers and and pharmacists, it's hard to necessarily expect the prescriber to adequately understand these risks or the pharmacist to adequately understand these risks, which is why a program like this is, is so helpful.
1: So, I haven't heard from pharmacists or physicians talking about um, the absorption, the breakdown, the efficacy, uh, say ten years ago. but I, I hear it most definitely talked about today. And maybe it's because my ears weren't um, weren't perked to really understanding it in in the topics that get me jazzed up because of um, because of my uh, my love of uh science fiction and in 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 literal science of today with pharmacogenomics and how mark and and david and, and andrew and me todd break down an opioid differently than someone else but now that's reality we we know that a drug is going to affect me differently than any of you um or anyone listening to this uh to this podcast episode and that has to come forward so that if we're going to start prescribing a, um, a psychotropic for depression or a pain management uh, medication for uh, for pain management for pain, we have to, now that we have the technology, it's ready, it's, it's no longer, it's even insured now to ensure, hey, is this going to be broken down the way it was intended? And and is there a, an alternative? As is Dr. Kalodney alluded with other medications that may be over the counter. And you're absolutely right. My own family thinks that over the counter medications, many of them, are absolutely safe and um, and aren't as impactful as a as a prescription medication. So the perception and education to the public. Is absolutely key and we just came out of you know major disruption with with the fall of of purdue for example and and what was staged in in helping to accelerate the opioid epidemic and now i think the public is more ready and understanding that when a pharmacist says to them as they're standing at the counter and they're ready to pick up their medication hey these are highly addictive. You have, you know, fifteen in this in this uh, um, container. You have seven in this container. Um, I'd like to talk with you, you know, eight days from now or whatever. I I think that communication and education for the public is the absolute key. And I, it's kind of answering my own question of what I asked the three of you. What what could we do right now? I think that's the first go. And I think everyone listening, you are a pharmacist, if you're listening, you are a pharmacy technician, if you're listening, if you're aware and you understand the severity of what this nation is under with a pandemic, an epidemic that's still happening, we have to be cognizant of that.
2: I really like what uh, David had mentioned earlier on the respect the chemical, you know, whether we call it respect the chemical, respect the medicine, eat tomato, tomato. But uh, it really brings up uh, one of the things, uh, Todd, you've probably heard this one from me before and our our pain pod co-listeners here, but uh, it's all about the dosage baby. You know, one of the things Andrew said earlier was um, something I I know he's been quoted many places for the comparison of uh, diacetylmorphine, that's heroin, uh, to oxycodone. Well, if you're going to paraphrase Paracelsus like I just did, one of the grandfathers of pharmacy and say it's all about the dosage baby turns out that many doses of oxycodone would just kick the butt of heroin, depending on the dose of heroin. It goes both ways there, you know. and, and there's many doses of heroin that could kick the tushy of, of oxycodone and all the other prescription opioids. It's really all about the dosage in the end as well too. So I, I think that's a, a central component of this respect the medicine, respect the chemical along the way, and what can really propel us Um, as pharmacists to provide that care to our patients, have those conversations to build those relationships.
1: I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation between the three of you. I think there's lots of uh, initial uh, reactions that I'd like to collect. If you're listening right now, if you can tweet us, if you can send us a direct message, if you can reach out to us on LinkedIn, There's much to be done. This is part two of an ongoing series that we're uh, very pleased and honored to have the participation of PROP and uh, pharmacists like Dr. Garofoli. And and ongoing communication has to be there. We have to challenge each other to do more and to be cognizant of what that patient's going through, respect the fact that they are in, in pain. And my pain's different than your pain. Your pain that you're going through you say, what's your pain severity from one to 10? And someone says nine. If I had that exact same pain, maybe it's only a six. Uh, you know, maybe it's uh, a five, I, whatever. It's it's very hard to, it's probably one of the hardest to manage and to assess and to understand, especially when there's suffering out there. And there are specialty, specialty disease states that I, I hear about from pharmacists who are Passionately treating patients, like sickle cell, for example, and so we're going to talk more about this. If if you're listening to this episode and you are engaged with patients who are suffering with pain, um, if you are a pharmacist who is very interested in helping your community in, in patients, um, even in the opioid usage disorder sector of 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 a disease or a condition, please reach out to us so we can get you involved. Um, Mark David and Andrew you as have been absolutely phenomenal and um just in closing i I'd, I'd like to ask David and, and Mark and and Andrew just to give our listeners um any any guideline or or suggestions before we uh we close it up today
4: I'll start it's just one thing that um you brought up that is probably a good topic for a further discussion is the whole thing with pain scores. You know, rating pain 1 to 10 is too subjective. I mean, there just is no objective way to measure pain. And I'm not sure we're going to come up with one, but to focus on a pain score rather than just focus on how is the patient doing? I mean, are they back to work? Are they, you know, they they back in the big bed, you know, not on the couch? You know, how's their life going? Sorry, anyway, that's a topic for another day. But I think that pharmacists, that we have an obligation to patients and to the prescribers to make sure that the medicines are used safely, uh, stored safely and disposed of safely. And that that that's what our role is. And that, you know, and I think bringing technicians in the part of that conversation too. And and that, um, um, anyways, I think just safe use is the goal here.
2: I would really echo what David was saying there. And it, it really comes down to... Um... I'd, I'd paraphrase or steal from my, my father-in-law, also a pharmacist, like darn near everyone in my family, uh, Professor Pete, to those that know him, but uh, nobody knows, nobody cares what you know until they know how much you care. It's that simple. Uh, you know, we, we chatted earlier about building those relationships with the conversations and whatnot. Um, pharmacists, my people, the eight phones for four humans in a pharmacy are always going to ring have the conversations anyway, whether over the phone or in person, uh, you know, whether you're going over the, the interactions, the side effects, the, uh, the addictive properties of any controlled substances for that matter, um, or the storage, uh, and perhaps disposal and, and whatnot. Um, the littlest thing could really, really make impacts in people's lives. And, and that's how we're going to help people is one at a time. That, that's how we can help within this opioid crisis. That's, uh, is, is dynamically shifting, but the end results are are only getting worse. But you know the perspective within healthcare, outside of healthcare, certainly dynamically changes. But we just got to do our thing. Keep helping people.
3: I would just like to close by saying to the pharmacists who are listening, the ones who really do go the extra mile to push back if they come across a controlled substance prescription that seems inappropriate, even when that can be really difficult to do uh, to to have to deal with a, a prescriber who who's not going to be happy to get that phone call and and the pharmacists who go out of their way to better inform patients about the the risks of these drugs i would just like to say thank you and and let them know that i i truly believe that that when they make that effort that they are potentially saving lives and, and helping prevent a tremendous amount of, of pain and suffering that can occur from from these drugs
1: excellent thank you for that um, I also want to let the listeners know um, our pharmacists our technicians our business professionals even our pharmacy owners please reach out to the pharmacy podcast also please reach out to health professionals um, that are really dedicated to opioid prescribing the correct opioid res- prescribing. Um, it's exciting to see that collaboration has increased over the years. I entered pharmacy in 2004 and it's a noticeable difference um, that uh, I think collaboration has increased and the opioid epidemic is, is going to um, is going to be impacted by that and is being impacted by that. So once again, um, a special thank you to uh, Dr. Mark Garofoli, um, David uh, Morgan, uh, pharmacist, and Dr. Andrew Kolodny for uh, being part of this uh, second episode. Um, Very much
2: appreciated. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Todd.